I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm actually out in Rockingham County, Virginia, at a Chesapeake Bay Foundation education conference. And we've had the great pleasure of having an old friend of mine and a real hero of mine, Bobby Whitescarver, join us. Bobby is a farmer and a conservationist. He spent 31 years with the Natural Resource Conservation Service. He now has his own consulting firm, and he teaches natural resource management at James Madison University. Bobby's a founding board member of the Valley Conservation Council, and most important of all, Bobby, you were our conservationist of the year for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation in 2002. Welcome. Thank you, Will. I'm going to ask you a very simple question to start with. What got you into farming in the beginning? In the Natural Resource Conservation Service, I've worked on farms all over Virginia for 31 years. And about 12 years ago, I got really lucky and married a ninth-generation farmer <laughs> in Swope, Virginia. I married the Princess of Swope, Jeannie Hoffman. <laughs> And that's that was the start of it. That was the start of real farming. Your family come from a farming background? No, sir, they did not. But I, I was, uh, we we had a farm nearby. We had horses, uh, but n not real. Uh, you know, I wasn't really steeped in the in the, uh, you know, the real farming life until I got into the. Soil, the uh, Soil Conservation Service, which I had to go work in tobacco fields and on dairies, you know, all over the state. And Jeannie taught you a few things, I imagine. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell me about your farm. Well, the Hoffman women own farmland in, in the uh, Shenandoah Valley, and specifically on the South Fork of the Shenandoah. The South Fork of the Shenandoah starts on that farm. Starts on your it's, farm. Well, you know, it starts in many right, places, right, but right. one of the places yeah. it starts is on, on our farm. And uh, we have a commercial cow-calf operation, so our business is to raise one calf per cow per year. And we sell the calves pretty much about December of each year. That's and how many, how many head do you have? We have about 120 brood cows, the... the ladies that produce the babies right. and then we sell their calves every year and what what sort of acreage on the farm oh uh, they wouldn't want me to say <laughs> <laughs> it's too many to take care of <laughs> and how about the crops we don't grow any annual crops at all it's all grass right no you don't have hay you we do have hay yeah. and that's a you know of course that's a perennial crop so we don't raise any annual crops and what what got your connection <clears throat> to conservation. What was the nexus of that? And you've written, uh, you, you do a great blogs, you write a lot, you speak a lot. I've read one blog about the connection to your farm, to the Shenandoah, to the Potomac, to the Chesapeake Bay. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you asked me how I got into conservation. I think that was your first question. I, think I, I asked have to you a say lot my of mother, questions, didn't you I? Know, my mother instilled in me ethics and taking care of place. And my father did too, and then I was in the Boy Scouts, and 
I got all the merit badges, you know, related to soil and water and wildlife management and things like that. And then when I went to school at Virginia Tech, I got a degree in agronomy and graduated, and I was an extension agent for a couple of years. And I left that for the Soil Conservation Service, which is now the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And that, that really opened my eyes to uh, the need for management of our soils. If we can make our soils healthier, we're going to make the streams healthier and ultimately the bay healthier. It all starts with the soil. We hear a lot about the fact that agriculture is one of many sources of pollution to the Chesapeake Bay. It's probably the largest source of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment. It's also the least expensive to reduce pollution from. And nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment are all good things. Why, 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 why is it called, why are we calling these problems? Well, that's a good question, Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you have too many of those uh, nutrients in one place and it rains and they wash off, you got a problem. Same with soil. If you don't have it anchored down, it's going to go places. We have things to deal with like gravity. So when it rains and your nutrients and your soil and your manure aren't anchored down, uh, they are going to start moving downslope and eventually get into the water, and that's when it starts to become a pollutant. And by the way, sediment is the largest pollutant by volume in the Chesapeake Bay, in our streams and in the bay. Farmers want to keep that soil on the farm. Well, they should, but you know, it's hard to see soil erosion. You can't see it until you're approaching about 15 tons of soil loss per acre per year. Now, let me back up and kind of tell you what that, you know, let me give you an uh, analogy of what that is. One ton of soil is about the thickness of a sheet of paper over one acre, or about the size of a football field. One that's, ton. That's one ton. Thickness of a sheet of paper thickness of a sheet over of paper. an entire acre. Yes, that would be one ton. Now, mm. you, you can't, you know, we don't, you know, back when I was in the Soil Conservation Service, we had a thing called the Universal Soil Loss Equation, <laughs> and that's evolved into the revised soil loss equation with computers and models and all that kind of stuff. We used to use a slide rule. Uh, but anyway, we, we can predict. We have empirical data that, that allows us to predict what your average annual soil loss will be under certain conditions. You know, there's things that we can't change. We can't change the this, this soil type. Right. We can't change the uh, rainfall. And so we've got 100 years of rainfall data for each county in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. You can't change the slope of your field. What you can change is how you crop it and, and what crops you grow. And so we can put all these things into an equation and come up with a reliable prediction of your annual average soil loss per acre per year. And we don't start to see soil erosion, little tiny rills, little tiny gullies, until you're at 15 tons of soil loss per acre per year. Good Lord. Yeah, so there's a lot of hidden soil erosion going on out there. You know, there's, there's uh, soil erosion that 
seven tons per acre, four tons per acre per year. And the tolerable limit of soil erosion depends on the soil type. Each soil type has its own uh, chemistry, physical properties that lend itself to breaking away and moving down slope. And we have factors for that in the soil loss equation. And so when you predict what it is, uh, uh, we can plan, well, let me back up. Each soil has its own tolerable limit of erosion. For example, Frederick fine sandy loam that we have in the valley has a tolerance level of four tons per acre per year. In other words, we can, we can build four tons uh, but Build, you mean we can we, replenish we four can, tons? The soil is renewable. Right. And so it, the, the goal in soil conservation is to not have soil erosion greater than, your, than Sus- you make soil. So it's sustainable. You're it not sustainable. losing any more than you're getting back in a given year. That's right. So we know those factors. And so if I go out on a farm, I can pull up web soil survey right on my smartphone I can find out what kind of soil type it is. I can find out what the erosion factor is for that and the tolerance level. And then I can start talking to you about your cropping system. What are you doing? How are you tilling? Which direction are you going? Are you going across the slope? Do you have a perennial in that rotation? So we're talking about soil sediment, a pollutant of the Chesapeake Bay, the streams and rivers, the Shenandoah, nitrogen, phosphorus, manure is a source of phosphorus. What's, what are the barriers to having the agricultural systems in this watershed doing a better job or getting to where they need to be to reduce the amount that's coming off the farm? Well, first of all, I don't think there's any farmer out there that wants to lose any soil. Exactly. You know, that's their bread and butter. Now, the, the, the barrier is... Uh, getting the awareness, the education as to what factors affect the rate of soil erosion. It's very difficult to grow corn silage and rye silage every year on a steep slope and not have erosion. It's very hard to do. Now it can be done and that's why we have conservationists working in the USDA for the Natural Resource Conservation Service. That's their job is to coach with farmers on designing a system of how to get to zero soil erosion. And one of the, uh, you know, the, you know, we need to, to start, uh, well, we've been doing it, but we need to get the concept of sequestering carbon into these soils. You know, carbon is the biggest nutrient out there. Right. It's in all plants. And it's soils, in all animals. Soil sequesters carbon as do if you trees. Put, if you well, manure is full of carbon. Yeah. Plants are full of carbon. So they you know what we used to do is we'd call it green manure. That's when you took a cover crop and turned it over and turned it into the soil. That was putting organic matter back into the soil. We can do the same thing with no till and with manure and things like that. So when you grow a crop, it's sequestering carbon all the time. That's what photosynthesis is all about. So when we're sequestering carbon, that plant is sequestering carbon. And if we put that in the soil, we've captured that carbon in the soil. Now, if we harvest it and we sell it, then you've, you've sold your carbon. Right. You know. 
It's now, going off the farm. You've been a strong advocate of the fact that farmers can do the right thing and still make good profits, if not more profits, by doing the right thing. Absolutely. Tell us a little more well, about that. Well, you know, way back in the 80s when I was in the Soil Conservation Service, we didn't have cost share programs. We sold conservation. Cost share programs being where well, government? Yeah, the, uh, where the taxpayers pay a subsidy to uh, incentivize some practice like cover crops or fencing cows out of streams or something like that. That's money uh, from the government that's going to affect change. That's the theory. Well, back then we didn't have that, so we had to sell conservation based on its merits of if you if you take care of the soil, it will take care of you. So if you if you build soil health, you're going to have more productivity, you're going to have more profit, and you're going to be more successful. You know, um, you, you know, you can drive around. You you know, I have a saying: you just follow the soil. You know, they're just saying follow the money. Well, I say follow the soil. The people that were lucky enough to settle on on fertile f farmland and, and we took have, care of it. And we have very fertile we, farmland. We do. And they took care of it. Those are rich people. Tell us uh, about your dreams, your good dreams. You really want to know, Will? Yeah. My good dream is to have no TMDL streams. We've fenced all the cattle What's out What's a TMDL stream? Well, a TMDL is a total maximum daily load stream. They have measured the pollution in that, and it, and it doesn't meet the state standard for whatever we're, we're testing for. For example, E. coli, uh, or, or does it have a benthic community, a community of, 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 of aquatic critters? Uh, like our stream, the, the beginning of the South Fork of the Shenandoah, the upper middle river, they did DNA testing on that stream, and 94% of the E. coli in that stream comes from cattle. And it's polluted, it's on the dirty waters list. So my dream would be to have Upper Middle River clean enough to stock with native brook trout. And Upper Middle River is your? That's, that, that river flows through our farm. What do you do to try to achieve that? Well, we've, we've you know, we fenced the cattle out in 2004. We planted forests. We planted quail habitat all along the, the Middle River and two unnamed tributaries. So we have about six acres of, of wildlife area that's producing uh, wildlife. Uh, it's it's a, a wildlife corridor, and it's sequestering a lot of carbon. The water's clean. Now, the, the river coming into our farm We've tested it for E. coli. It's, it's above 1,000 uh, colony-forming units per 100 milliliters of water. And when it leaves a quarter mile later, the E. coli has been cut in half just because it didn't have any more inputs of E. coli. And the sunlight and the processes of the, of the aquatic food chain took care of it. So from upstream of your farm to downstream, you're cutting in half the E. coli. Yes, sir. And I bet the stream bank looks pretty, too. It does. What's Absolutely. the difference? Oh, it's night and day. Tell yeah. us. Well, the, you know, before we fenced the cows out, the, the stream banks were totally denuded. The cows would hang out in their favorite places, and they'd just hang out. And they would, you know, of course, when it's 
you know, above 70 degrees, cows want to get in the water. So they had these swimming, you know, their swimming pool, you know, they were defecating in the stream, the trampling the stream banks when they'd go up and down the stream banks. There wasn't a tree on it. And so now we have, uh, we planted the trees in 2004, and we have what we call tree canopy closure. The, 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 the ends of the branches of one tree are touching another hmm. tree, so we've got shade. Cooler it's water. It's cooling the water. Right. The leaves fall off of those trees and get into the water, and that is the, is the very bottom of the food chain for the aquatic food chain. So the, the shredders and, and all the microbes are, are creating a thriving ecosystem in the water. Have you talked to your cows lately? Are they just as happy now, or are they? They are, and, <laughs> and that system, you know, it was just one big field before. It was, it was a nightmare trying to get the cows, you know, to the barn. What about the herd health, and what are large animal vets saying about keeping cattle out of the streets? Well, there's no question that, that, you know, any mammal drinking cleaner water is gonna be healthier, and they're gonna gain more weight quicker. So clean water means a healthier animal. I mean... You're not losing calves, I guess, as well. Aren't they sometimes birthed in the stream or can't get out? Oh, yes. And, and, in, and in my years working with NRCS, uh, I can tell you there were a lot of farmers that told me they'd lost calves in those, uh, you know, what we call a, a calving risk area. Right. These are, you know, your streams, your steep banks, uh, you know, when you're calving in, in cold weather and that calf can't get up, uh, it's going to perish. Mastitis, hoof, hoof diseases, all those utter things, infections. Yes, all those things are related to, to herd health and, and waterborne diseases. I've even, you know, we have horses. Even the farrier says, keep your horses out of the creeks because they're going to lose their shoes. Mm. Bobby, you've been doing this a long time. What are your some of your nightmares? Well, to be honest, you know, when we, we do have a stream crossing in the river, mm -hmm. and you know, when it starts raining, you know, we try to prepare for that. You know, when we know a big storm is coming, I will go down to our crossing and I will raise up our one electric fence that goes across the uh, the, the river. We have two that go across there, and so I have a special crossing where I have the wires I just take from the bottom and put them on the top and let the floodwaters come on through. Now sometimes I get caught in the middle of the night and a big storm comes, <laughs> I gotta get up and go, go do that. But that's, that's how we live with the river. You can't, you can't fight the river. There are no absolutes in this world. There isn't. And, and, and you know, on our farm, uh, the, the uh, fencing of the streams pretty much tripled our, our uh, length of fences that have to be maintained. That has created more work for us in fencing, but what we have lost in fencing maintenance, we have gained in the ease of moving cattle. All we have to do is go to a gate and call the cows now, and they come, because we do rotational grazing, and, and it is uh, no question in my mind that we get, we produce more per acre, our cows are happier, they're, they're gaining quicker, it's easier to get to the barn with, with the herd, and Jeannie is a lot happier. <laughs> and when Jeannie's happy, you're happy. Yes. If you, you, you the, the polarization 
between the agricultural community, some in the agricultural community and some in the environmental community, must be a huge disappointment to you. And it's so unnecessary. What, what if, if you had one thing that could be done, or two or three things that could be done, what would you hope for looking out? Well, th there's several things, Will, but one of the things that I think would help would be to have more boots on the ground to help farmers. Right. Uh, we, we, you know, when, when, when I was working, we had, you know, we would follow up on our practices. In other words, when a farmer would install a practice, we would go back and we'd check on it and we'd, we would make frequent visits to build a relationship with the people in our community. And, and, and that works. And, but, you know, I think now the, the uh, you know, the, the NRCS and other agencies, they, they have these car share programs and they're uh, spending more time moving paper than building those relationships that need to be there and I think you know if if a, you know another thing is the American farmer will raise what the the consumer wants to buy I remember uh, in in Stewart's draft there, there's a farmer that that he he uh, fenced his cows out and I went to see him because we bought a turkey from him or something that and he fenced his cows out, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, what compelled you to fence the cows out? He said, my customers asked me to. Isn't that something? Yeah. And so he fenced his cows out, and his customers come back, you know, because they, they believe he's a better steward. Now. The consumer is demanding so much in this day and age, and you think the producers will follow the markets? They will. They will if they're good business I people. guarantee you. Bobby, thank you so much. Anything else you'd like? And do you have any advice for me? <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing, Will. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation is a great organization. Uh, they're, they're doing the right thing, and, and we are. We're going to make it. We're going to have a restored bay. We're on track with it, and, and I think we're going to make it. Will that be by next year or the year after? Probably the year after. <laughs> you think we'll live to see it, Bobby? I do. I do, too. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bobby Whitescarver. You're an inspiration. We're so happy to be working with you. We're delighted you are here today for this education conference at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Check in cbf.org, our website, and tune in again in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you.